Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Merry Christmas! It is so good to worship together today, isn't it? My goodness, my goodness. Well, um, if you're new with us, we're so grateful that you're here. We are in week three of a series that we're calling Behold the Lamb. It's our Advent series. And just as, as a way of reminder, Advent is different than Christmas. Christmas is all about the birth of Christ and the celebration of his birth. But Advent is a season where we intentionally discipline our souls to enter back into a time of waiting, or maybe better said, to remind ourselves that we are a people in waiting. That we live in between two proclamations. Number one, that Christ has come. And number two, that Christ will come, what? Again, that Christ will come again. And so we are a people waiting, anticipating, and hoping. You know, this earlier this week on Friday, I had a a behold moment. I was out on my my Friday run with my dog, Lou, and we were doing our favorite trail, um, Mule Hill. And we were running and just starting to ascend up Mule Hill, and I looked to my right, and I saw in almost every single coastal, uh, California coastal sagebrush bush a spider web. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh, it had been a foggy morning, and the dew had sort of settled on all of these bushes, and then the sun was starting to break through, and it just illuminated all of these spider webs. And like garland, their webs went from one bush to the next. And I just, I paused, and um, I freaked out a little bit, right? Because I'm like, there's a lot of spiders out there, but I also had this behold moment of how many times have I just simply ran by and, and never noticed, never noticed. Like they're out there all the time. And in fact, as I was on my way running back, the sun had broken through enough and dried up the dew that was residing on those webs to illuminate them and they disappeared. <laughs> Only that they didn't disappear entirely. They were still very much there. I just wasn't able to see them. And I, and I had this behold moment where I, I think the spirit of God just whispered to me, Ryan, there are moments when you notice me and then there are moments when you run right by. And I started to wonder what would it look like to be the kind of person who noticed who had my eyes open just a little bit more to see the way that Jesus is present in the every day. I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it in his great work, The Weight of Glory, when he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I started to ask my question on that trail, and I want to invite you to ask it today. What would it look like for you, for us to to not be too easily pleased, to want more, to press in for more, to pray for more, to strive for more, to become people who live with a passionate, insatiable desire to meet God, not just when we gather in this place, but in the 
every day, what would it look like to notice the spider webs? Metaphorically speaking, of course. What would it look like? I think that's the picture that we get in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open there with me. If you have a phone or an iPad with you, I'd invite you to turn there as well. Because we're going to read through a chunk of Matthew chapter 2 in order to get a a landscape of what's going on in the story. And then we're going to dive in more deeply to look at the way that we see pursuit in this passage. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Are you there? Great. Three of you, fine with me. Here we go, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, just a quick timeout, quick note. We don't know exactly how long after Jesus was born that this event happens. We just know that it was after he was born. Behold, there's that word. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. It's an interesting note that these are the only words the Magi speak in this passage that in large part is about them. It only goes to further their sort of enigmatic presence in this passage. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Yet you think when people come to a king and ask, where's the king? If you're the king, you'd be troubled too especially in the ancient world. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. Insert wink, wink into the text, right? Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and, and they worshipped him. It's interesting, there's, there's no halos present. There's no great glory, just a, a child in his mother's arms. It's fascinating, in in apocryphal gospels and in the Quran, you have Jesus speaking wisdom and doing miracles even from his crib. But not so in Matthew's gospel. It's very normal, it's very everyday, it's very believable. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, in case you're ever in a Bible trivia game, where they ask you how many wise men or magi were present at Jesus's, um, in this scene where they come to visit Jesus, how many are there? We don't know. We don't know. We know that there were three gifts given. We know that multiple wise men or magi show up, but we don't know how many. You'll thank me when you're in the Bible trivia game, okay? 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may have noticed that that word behold shows up two times in this text. That, that word that causes us to, to pause. That causes us to read with inflection. That word that causes us to press our face up against the glass, as it were, to try to get a better view of going on because we are being invited to behold something that's just a little bit different and maybe a little bit magnificent. What are we invited to behold in this passage? Well, first, we're invited to behold wise men. Or some of your translations, if you have an NASB or you have an NIV, read magi. In the Greek, it's the word megos. And it quite literally could be translated magician. These are people who often would spend time studying the stars. They were ancient scholars, uh, most likely from the priestly line in either Persia or Babylon, which meant that they traveled over 500 miles in order to arrive at the feet of the Messiah. And in so many ways, they paint this picture for us of what it looks like to live out what God called the nation of Israel to do and us to do through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, you will seek me and find me. When do you find God? When you seek me with all of your heart. I think in so many ways, that's the picture that these magi paint for us. But this Christmas, this Christmas, I'm gonna challenge you to not just behold pursuit, but I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us to be, become a pursuer. Not just to behold pursuit, but to become a pursuer. Because my conviction is that wise men and wise women seek him still. They seek him today, just like they did back then. So who were the Magi. There's really three characters in this story. The Magi are the first. Like we said, they were most likely a priestly line from Babylon or from Persia. They're oftentimes not looked upon favorably in the scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, Paul calls one Magi or one magician a child of the devil. Not exactly a compliment. But there are some magi who were looked upon favorably. My guess is you know one of their names. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. Any guesses? Daniel. Daniel was a magi. Daniel chapter 2 verse 48. He is the chief of the magi in Babylon. And I have this sneaking suspicion that maybe just maybe Daniel had passed down some sort of prophecy to those magi about to be looking up in the stars at the time, for the time when the Messiah maybe, just maybe, would be born. So you have these magi in this passage, these Gentile pagan magi in the Christmas story, and Matthew includes them to remind us that this God, this God that we worship today, is willing to break down ethnic and religious barriers in pursuit of humanity. This is a story that is good news of great joy for how many people? All people. For all people. But the magi aren't the only characters in the story. You also have Herod. And Herod is this maniacal, crazy dictator. 
He rose to prominence, he rose to the throne through a series of political maneuvers and friendship with Caesar Augustus. He was half Jew, half Edomite, and he really tried to accommodate Rome and in doing so ascended to power in 37 BC. Herod was absolutely brutal and he was bloody. He killed many members of his own family and it's really interesting that the Caesar said it would be Better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. He's not exactly the kind of guy that you're going to invite over for Thanksgiving dinner. And I think in so many ways, Herod represents the resistance in each one of us to the throne that Jesus claims to take. I think there's a little bit of Herod in each one of us that says, Lord, I'm not sure, Jesus, I want you on the throne. I like me there. In fact, I think I, I, I do a better job sometimes. And I think there's a little bit of Herod in each one of us. And then the other group, the other group are the chief priests and the scribes. And Herod knew the value of these scholars. He knew that if the information was out there about where the Messiah would be born, they would know. And they didn't disappoint, right? Right? So when Herod calls for them, they come and they bring news. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the Messiah is going to be born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's exactly what the scriptures say. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people, Israel. Here's the striking part of this story. You have three groups of people who are present. You have the Magi, who are pagan Gentiles from the East, and they are pursuing the Christ. You have Herod, who's this maniacal dictator, who wants to find Jesus and sends delegates to look for him. Now, certainly, he wants to find Jesus for nefarious motives, no doubt about that. But he wants to find him nonetheless. And then you have this third character in the story. The chief priest and the scribes. Of the three main characters in the story, the religious people are the only people who don't pursue the Messiah. And I just have to wonder, was there a conversation that happened amongst them? Like, hey, do you, do, you got, do you think we should go? Do you think they're onto something? Do you think maybe, just maybe, we should make this journey? By the way, in Jerusalem, they were roughly five miles away from Bethlehem. Five miles away, holding all of the information that they needed in order to get there, and they don't arrive. And they're the only group in this text that doesn't even try. See, see, I would argue that while this is certainly a story about people far from God pursuing him and finding him, it's also a story about those close to God missing him entirely. I think this is a cautionary tale for those of us who know and hold the scriptures, who maybe even love the scriptures, that it's possible for us to know the scriptures and not arrive at their appointed end. 
I think this story is designed to be read with a sense of sacred questioning to ask God, is there more that you're inviting me to? I think that we owe it to ourselves to ask ourselves the question this morning, have I been just lulled to sleep by the truth? Have I settled for knowledge instead of letting knowledge stoke a desire and a fire for intimacy? Have I filled my head with knowledge, but my heart has grown cold? Have I gone comfortable with knowing all the answers, but I refuse to take that five-mile journey to the manger? I mean, I mean, I mean, guys, I just wonder how many of us are five miles from Jesus this morning, holding the answers, yet refusing to take the journey. And I don't know about you, but I just don't want to miss him. What about you? I mean, if there's more that God has for me and for us, I want it. Who's with me? If there's more intimacy that God has for me and for us, I want it. How about you? If there's more power walking in his spirit, I want it. How about you? Three of you do. Then I'll I'll preach to those three, right? (laughs) So what can we learn? Because I, I think there's a lot that we can learn. What can we learn from the Magi about what it looks like to be people who pursue? Well, like I said, the Magi were most likely ancient scholars of the stars. And in the ancient world, in so many ways, astronomy, the study of the stars, and astrology, the the message of the stars, as it were, were combined in the ancient world. So we're not exactly sure what was going on in the sky at the time. We only know that something was going on in the sky. And there are, as you can imagine, volumes written on what could have potentially been going on in the stars. So I'm just going to spend about 30 minutes unpacking what those options are. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm going to give you three options really quick. Number one, some people think that there was a comet that appeared and that it stoked the imagination of the Magi. In many ways, comets have been held or believed to be heralds of the arrival of important figures onto the world stage. Now, as we've gone back and studied and tried to piece this together, there are no comets that we know of that appeared around the time when Christ was born. The second option is that this was a planetary conjunction. Most likely, and people surmise that that just maybe it was Jupiter and Mars coming into some sort of alignment in the constellation of Pisces that would be indicative of the arrival of a king, the birth of a king. That's often the way it would be interpreted in the ancient world. Or finally, some people think that it was a nova, the result of a stellar explosion that resulted in the bright, a bright light, a phenomenon in the skies. This was, uh, ironically enough, or interestingly enough, Johannes Kepler, the father of modern science. This was the view that he took because there was a nova that appeared around the time when Christ was born in 4 or 5 BC, which is really interesting. It fits the date. Now... My goal is not to give you an answer as to what happened in the sky when Christ was born. Only to say that something happened in the natural world that somehow signaled to these pagan Gentile magi that the Christ was coming on to the scene. Now... Here's what I would suggest to you as a follower of Jesus, if that's who you are this morning, a person who loves the scriptures, this should not surprise us. I mean, the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out what? 
speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Maybe, just maybe, God's glory and beauty and truth are on display throughout creation in ways that we could never even imagine. Maybe we should read Psalm 19 verses 1 through 2 a little bit more literally. However they were drawn, we know that the Magi were were people who were willing to go on a journey in order to see what God was saying. And here's what they, they teach us. They teach us that as we chase after God, as we become not just beholders of pursuit, but pursuers, we have got to move from being stagnant to becoming curious. The Magi are asking questions. The scribes, they have all the answers. <laughs> and yet it's the Magi who arrive at the feet of Jesus. You may want to, if you're taking notes, you may want to write just underneath this point that curiosity seems to be a necessity for spiritual growth. Curiosity is a necessity for spiritual growth. When we lived in Colorado, we lived close enough to the Denver Museum of Nature and History in order to have a pass to go there. And um, when my kids were young and it was my day off, I used to love to take them to the museum. And one thing I learned that in taking my kids to the museum was that I needed to have Google ready at every moment because my kids asked so many questions when we were there. Any of you parents, you, you know this, right? We'd be walking through, Dad, why is the sky blue? Why is the sky blue? Um, Dad, how does gravity work? Dad, how in the world, they're looking at this exhibit, how in the world did we get from here to there? Dad, what happened to the dinosaurs? Dad, how far away are those planets? And here's what I noticed. I didn't have great answers for most of their questions. And yet, I hadn't asked the questions. I just was cruising. And I think so many of us, we wander through life in a very similar way. I mean, maybe that's what it means to have childlike faith, to ask more questions to become curious about the world that we live in again. And I think we tap out of that to a large degree because it's exhausting to ask questions, isn't it? It's exhausting to answer them. Think of how exhausting it is to ask them. But what if, what if we were to believe, if we shut down curiosity, we turn off spiritual growth? See, what the Magi experienced, I would argue, is from a theological perspective, what we might call general revelation. General revelation means that the fingerprints of God are all around us. That God is on display through his creation. That he has pointed out to us through the beauty and intricacy of what he has created. That there is a designer to it all. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Rome making this point. He would say, say, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to us. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, we, you are without excuse. Friends, God has put himself on display through his creation. Creation shouts of the glory and the beauty and the majesty of its creator. 
as Sir Francis Bacon, the developer of the scientific method, wrote, God has, in fact, written two books, not just one. Of course, we're all familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture. But he has written a second book called Creation. I love that. And see, general revelation was enough to get the Magi within five miles of the Messiah. But it wasn't enough to get them all the way there. What they need in order to get all the way there? Specific revelation, scripture. They needed to know exactly where the Messiah would be born. But as I think about their journey, I started to ask myself the question, what what if the, the end goal of science and scripture is the same? What if it's Jesus? What if the end goal of telescopes and theology is the same? What if it's all about Jesus? Jesus is wooing you through the complexity and beauty of his creation. What if we just decided we're going to remain curious, not allowing ourselves to grow stagnant? Second thing that the Magi teach us, they're, they're willing to walk 500 miles plus because of something they see in the sky. I mean, we have to step out of the story for a moment and just try to imagine what the conversation with their family might have been like before they left, right? Like, hey, so we saw this star a while back. You remember the star? Yeah. Um, We're gonna go and we're gonna try to find where it's leading us. Where is that? Well, we're gonna start hiking west. Where are you going? We're not sure exactly where we're going. When are you gonna be back? We're not sure exactly when we're going to be back. What are you taking along for the journey? We're, we're just, we just have this desire, this hunch, if you will, this holy haunting to go and to figure out if God is indeed speaking to us through his creation. Yeah, I, I was convicted by this because they're willing to walk 500 plus miles because of general revelation and and. My goodness, I don't want this to be an indictment on anyone. Please don't hear it as such, especially if you're listening online. This isn't a slam on you at all. I understand there are good reasons that people still need to worship online, but they're willing to walk 500 miles to get to the feet of Jesus. And oftentimes we're unwilling to get out of our pajamas to come to church. And I think there's something that should stir in us that that there's, There needs to be a longing to meet with God. There needs to be this desire to leave what maybe is comfortable or familiar. We have to reject complacency and we need to be people who are willing to take risks, to take risks. And there's at least two things that that means from this text. First, it means leaving the comfortable and it means leaving the familiar to go out on a journey. And the scriptures are chock full of people who do this. I mean, think of Abraham, who God calls to leave the place that he was born in order to go, quote, to a land that I will show you. Like, how's that for specific? Just leave. And as you leave, I'll show you. I mean, we have people like Gideon who leaves the majority of his army behind and goes with 300 men who drink really strangely out of a stream in order to fight a battle. 
right? We have David who steps off of the sidelines and into the valley to fight a giant. We have Esther who leaves her place of prominence, stands before King Xerxes and advocates on behalf of the nation of Israel, knowing that it very well may cost her her life. We have people all throughout scripture who reject complacency and enter into risk. And here's the second thing we know about risk. It's costly. It's costly. It takes something from us in order to step out. For the Magi, it took time, it took energy, it took money, it took gifts that they laid at the feet of Jesus. But I'm just reminded that a faith that costs us nothing doesn't involve pursuit. You could say it positively. Pursuit always, always has a cost to it. It always has a cost to it. And the Magi are teaching us that pursuing God often falls outside of our familiar patterns. It calls us to the fringes, to the wilderness, to respond to the fingerprints of God, to the nudge of the Spirit. I mean, when was the last time, you guys, when was the last time that you set your alarm to get up early to spend time with God, trusting that He was going to speak to you through the Scriptures? I mean, really, not just like, hypothetically did it, like, oh yeah, that'd be a good idea, and I agree. I sh- when was the last time you actually did it? Trusting that God would speak, that his Holy Spirit would move, that he would stir you. When was the last time you stepped out into something that was a little bit different than your normal everyday patterns? Because those oftentimes are the ways that we experience God. So maybe, maybe you do just set your alarm a little bit early and say, God, I just, I just want to reject complacency in my life and I want to pursue. Maybe you decide one morning this week you're going to get up early and you're going to go out to Daily Ranch and you're going to walk up that really, really, really steep hill and get to the top of it and sit on the bench and watch the sunrise just peek over that hill and remain and, and sit just astonished at the glory of God or if you're more of a night owl maybe you go down to the beach and you lay out a blanket and you get in your chair and you just watch the sun dip beneath the Pacific and you ask God stir something fresh in me stir something fresh maybe just maybe you step into the risk of having a conversation about faith with a friend or a colleague or somebody in your circle of influence or maybe just maybe you take the risk of offering forgiveness to somebody who you've been at odds with for a long time. Whatever it looks like, would we become people who reject complacency and embrace a sense of risk in order to pursue God? Finally, let me, let me make an obvious observation. The Magi were, were passionate about arriving at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. They wouldn't take no for an answer. It wasn't enough for them to know where the Messiah was going to be born. They wanted to make it to his feet. Yeah, the information about where Jesus was going to be born was important, but it was not their end. Listen to their end. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they, what? Worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, see, here's here's the progression. Here's where these magi go, and here's the path they lay down for us, too. Their journey starts with pursuit. It starts with a longing for something more. 
And then they encounter the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes. They, they gain more knowledge. And then they make this five-mile journey to encounter. But when they get to the feet of Jesus, and when they get to Jesus, they don't just go, we made it. Praise God. And I make this point because in our cultural moment, spiritual experience is in vogue. It's popular. There's a desire to want to interact with God. And there's a desire to have some sort of experience with God. But I just want to tell you that that is never the end in the biblical narrative. The end is not, I want to get in the presence of God. That's not the end. That's a part of the goal, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is worship. Worship. That when we encounter God, it's not, wow, God, you're amazing. God, you're great. Wow, baby, cool. No, when they encounter God, it's we are bowing down in reverence and awe. This is the King of kings, Lord of lords, the King of it all in a manger. A God who is bigger than the creation itself is dwelling in a manger. And they bow in adoration. That's the telos. That's the end. That's the goal that all of this leads up to. And so here's what they don't do. They don't stop at information. They allow that information to lead them to a place of adoration. And friends, I just have to point out, it stands in stark contrast to the religious people. To the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, I just, I have to wonder, and I'd invite you to, to do so also. Did they just think they'd arrived already? Like, like was this just the, the pinnacle of religious experience was to have all of the right answers? I don't know. It's a temptation that, I'll just be honest, I fall prey to as well. But I'm here to remind you today that knowing about God and worshiping God are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Now you need to know about God to worship him. Yes and amen. Knowledge is absolutely essential. It's just not the end goal. In fact, Jesus made this point when he was talking to the Pharisees. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse to take this five mile journey even though you've got the answers. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And if this was a temptation before the enlightenment, can we just name that it's probably even more of a temptation for us today living in its wake? See, the scribes show us that knowledge alone is not enough. But the magi show us that knowledge is absolutely essential to encountering Christ and bowing in reference. And that's the goal of our lives. Is to be people who pursue him and then who bow in adoration and love at his goodness and his glory and his beauty and his majesty and who do so not just upon profession of faith, but who do so as a way of life. I love the way that A.W. Tozer captured it in his great little book, The Pursuit of God, when he said, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Oh, A.W. so good. 
scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy existence by children of the burning heart. I want a burning heart. How about you? I don't want to settle for religious games. I don't want to go through the motion of church. I I want my heart to burn for God as much today as when I first met him on that mountain trail over 20 years ago. I want to be captivated by his beauty and his majesty and his awe afresh every day. What about you? I want to behold, I want to notice the spider webs that are out there. And I want to bow in reverence, not just when we're here, but in our everyday lives. I want to be a child of the burning heart. What about you? What about you? So how do we do that? Let me give you three quick things. Number one, that we spend time in scripture. That's that's one of the ways we do it. Knowing scripture isn't the end, but it's absolutely essential. Some have described it as the doorway into the presence of God. It's one of the main ways that we arrive at the feet of Jesus. And and at the fear of sounding legalistic, if you know my heart, you know that's not me at all, not in the least. But, but, if we aren't spending time in scripture regularly, we simply aren't living a life of pursuit. We aren't. And I just want to call you to, to get after the Lord through the scripture. To, 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 to expect that when you open this book, that the spirit of God is going to stir you. He's going to make alive these words to lead you in the way of Jesus. To live with the heart of Jesus. That your heart is going to be pricked. But if you never open it, that's probably not going to happen. I just want to challenge you to long for more. If you're struggling with how to do that, there's a how to study the Bible card in the back lobby, or if you're worshiping with us online, you can download it online. But let's be people who spend time in the scriptures. Second, would you ask Jesus to stir your heart? The Puritans used to pray that their heart would be stirred with affection for Jesus. (laughs) Would you pray the same thing? Tell him that you're not satisfied knowing about him. But tell him you want to know him and arrive at his feet. Tell him you want to love him more. Tell him you want your heart to burn with passion for him. I mean, pray what David prayed in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, you go on and you read the rest of Psalm 63. And if David weren't writing about God, it would be rated PG-13 at least. I mean, he's just going, I want you. I want more of you. In every part of my being, God, I want you. Would you pray that same thing? God, stir my heart with affection for you. And then finally, when he does, would you be a person who responds with abandon? Which means that we release our desire for image management. I mean, our desire for people to think well of us or to think we're normal, whatever that is often prevents us from being willing to really get after God. I mean, so what if you just sort of shut that all off and said, God, when we 
when I want to come into your presence, whether it's in my living room or in this worship center, I'm just going to worship you with abandon. I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to shout. I don't care what the people around me think. I'm going to get after you. I mean, friends, go back and read the scriptures. This is what David the king did when he stripped down into his underwear in front of his whole nation and started to dance in worship of his God. And his wife was like, oh, please stop. (laughs) Which is often what my wife's thinking too. Please stop, right? No, like, he's like, I'm getting after it and I don't care what anybody Things. It's what the woman did who burst into a room full of men, knelt down at the feet of Jesus, and used her hair to wash his feet. She didn't care who was looking on, and everybody looking on was thinking, who in the world does she think she is? And that's not normal. But sometimes you got to get a little weird if you're actually really going to worship. you got to let go a little bit if you want to get after the heart of the king. It's exactly what the Magi did. So let's not be like the religious people in this story who have all the information but refuse to make the journey. Let's get after God. Let's settle for nothing less than being captivated by him and bowing in adoration. Let's be people committed to hearing the whispers, to seeing the fingerprints of his glory and majesty all around us. In so many ways, there's this groundswell in our cultural moment of people longing to meet God. There's a, there's a desire for spirituality, so much so that um, there's this road, the Camino, a few hundred miles throughout Spain, where um, people have walked for years and years on religious pilgrimage. People walk it for all sorts of reasons, but most of the time it's to have some sort of encounter with God, to meet with God in some way. Did you know that in 2019, more people signed up for permits to walk the Camino than in any previous year? 350,000 people said, I want to walk that. I want to encounter God in a deeper way. And friends, you have the answers. You have the answers. But the Magi ask us, are you willing to take the journey? Because having the answers doesn't necessarily make you a pursuer. It's just an invitation. There's more. There's more. There's more. Come deeper. Further up. And further in, as C.S. Lewis wrote. And as a follower of Jesus, here's the good news for us that we get to celebrate during this season. The reminder that we're given during Christmas time is that all pursuit of God is simply a response to his pursuit of us. He pursued you to the point of becoming a human, born as a baby, laid down in a manger, lived a perfect life, and eventually was killed on a Roman cross because of love for you. His pursuit was costly. And yet, he would say, worth it. But we're reminded today, friends, that there's no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after you. There's no wall that he will not kick down. 
There's no lie he won't tear down coming after you. He is the hound of heaven. His fingerprints are all around you. And his invitation is, will you, as the scriptures say, will you draw near to the throne of God with confidence to find mercy and grace in your time of need. Would you stand with me, friends? Would you stand with me? So Lord, we come before you this morning and we just wanna tell you, we're not into religious games. We're not into going through the motions. God, we don't want our, our heads to be full of knowledge and our hearts to be cold towards you. So stir in us afresh. Stir in us afresh. Remind us of your love that might awaken us to life. Holy Spirit, come. Do your work. God, we don't wanna be five miles away. That's not close enough for us. God, we wanna arrive at your feet. We wanna bow in adoration. We wanna tell you we think you're amazing. We think you're beautiful. We are so grateful that you have given yourself for us, that you have come for our rescue, that you've died for our sins, that you've sent your spirit to live inside of us. We are so thankful. Lord, help us never to grow bored of this story. Help us never to grow complacent living in this world that you are absolutely, evident in God help us to reject at every point indifference God we want to be children of the burning heart spirit come spirit come spirit come thank you for listening to our service we'd love to have you join us in person for more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.